Welcome to Health or Consequences, the podcast by Commonwealth Magazine. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and my co-host is Paul Hattis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. Welcome to everybody. Today we are absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Monica Burrell, who is the Commissioner of Public Health for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and has more issues on her plate today and just about every day than anyone could imagine. We are delighted to have you. Uh, welcome, Commissioner. And uh, let me just start by asking you before the Commissioner, before the Department of Public Health, you were the Medical Director of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how your work with Healthcare for the Homeless informs your uh, role at the Department of Public Health today? Sure. Thank you, John and Paul. It's just wonderful to be here with you today and talk a little bit about all the great work that's happening at the Department of Public Health. Um, I am trained as a general internist. I did my training at uh, Boston University and what at the time was Boston City Hospital and have been um, practicing general internal medicine and primary care for over 20 years and feel really fortunate to have worked in many different environments, including um, at city hospitals, community health centers, VAs, and as you mentioned, 12 years at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. And I feel truly honored to have worked with my patients from whom I learned so much about what it means to try and access care when you're sick and to try and find opportunities to be healthy. And um, what really um, is most important to me that I learned from my patients is that all of us want to be healthy and find opportunities to be healthy. And when my patients needed treatment for things like their diabetes or their congestive heart failure, they were, I was able to tell them how much insulin to take or get them an appointment for the cardiologist they needed to see. But I had less answers for some of the things that they were really struggling with, like where to store their insulin when they were sleeping under a bridge, or how to get access to low-salt diets when they were sleeping in their shelter, or how to remain safe at night. And for me, this, these experiences and being able to see um, these tremendous spirits um, you know, work so hard to take care of their health, it really made me think at the individual patient level, there's things that we can do to help them treat their disease. But there's so much more that needs to be done at the systematic level to make healthy opportunities more attainable for all of us. Great. Let me turn it over to Paul Hattis. Paul? Welcome, Commissioner Burrell. You know, we're sitting here on Halloween Day, uh, a little bit over a month since you, Governor Baker, with the support of the Public Health Council, took the uh, important step, some would say, of banning the sale of all vaping products given some of the uh, public health concerns uh, that, that have emerged. Since that time, a uh, number of different events, um, and uh, courts did get involved uh, when, when some challenged uh, the ability to, to uh, issue that ban, and we stand here today where the ban is in effect. Uh, for the uh, cannabis portion, um, it, it goes forward, but on the nicotine side, you're now involved in a little bit of a regulatory hearing and comment process uh, tied to that. Uh, we've also had the second death, sadly, of, of someone with a, with a vaping uh, history, I think, of just nicotine in, in our state. Tell us, a lot's been going on. Your thoughts about uh, everything that's emerged uh, to date, if you would. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's a really important issue for us to be talking about right now. 
So, you know, if you think about e-cigarette and vaping use, this really came to our attention um, in public health a couple of years ago when we started seeing these alarming numbers of youth and young people beginning to use these devices. Um, they're relatively new in terms of um, being around. They've only been around since about 2007. And we started seeing in Massachusetts many more youth and young people using them. So if you look at 2017 data, you'll see that high schoolers, um, over 40%, say that they've tried it. Um, yeah, and tremendous proportion. Really unbelievable. And here in Massachusetts, over 20% of high schoolers are using them regularly. So we began working over the last year to address this youth and young people, a real epidemic of e-cigarette and vaping use. And we know that um, nicotine is addictive and nicotine is so dangerous to the brain, the developing brains of youth and young people. So we began a campaign to make sure that the e-cigarette and vaping use did not lead to another generation of individuals addicted to nicotine. And as part of that, we did a lot of education um, with young people, educating each others about, um, you know, there's this myth that a lot of young people believe that um, e-cigarettes are quote unquote the safe cigarette and we really needed to have them be educated and understand and parents and teachers said we didn't know um, you know the, that these devices would look like slick little USBs um, and are being barred into classrooms how do we catch up and make sure that we're protecting our youth so in that context where we've been doing a lot of work um, with the with communities around um, e-cigarette and vaping in young people we began unfortunately in August of this year to hear about this alarming um, new um, pulmonary disease associated with e-cigarettes and vapings in all age groups. So the CDC started reporting on that in, um, you know, a dozen or so states. And here in Massachusetts, we said we need to understand how is this disease impacting us in Massachusetts. So on September 11th, um, through our authority at the Department of Public Health, we mandated reporting of any um, pulmonary um, disease related to vaping to the Department of Public Health. And, you know, before we mandated that, we were hearing about a couple of potential cases here or there. But unfortunately, after we mandated it, the numbers just started to come in. And every day we started to hear about uh, multiple cases. And now we're up to over um, 200 cases have been reported to us at the department to investigate. Um, when the ban was put in place um, by the governor on September 24th, it came in the context of saying, we are not, we don't know what this um, disease is caused by. We don't know whether it's the device, whether it's some one of the products. And in order to be able to keep individuals safe in Massachusetts, we'll ban temporarily all of these, it pauses it. It gives us a pause so that we can better investigate these and cases. And the science uh, move forward. Understand the science and work with our federal colleagues. And um, just to give you the numbers, we um, so far are up to reporting 20 confirmed cases to the CDC and 41 probable cases, and our investigation is ongoing. Okay. Now, you mentioned the broader concern, public health concern about vaping, and, and so part of the policy discussion our states also included what should we do about things like flavored vaping products? Mm -hmm. And uh, should we add taxes to, uh, to uh, vaping products because they do, don't currently have the kind of taxes that we, let's say, place on regular cigarettes? Any thoughts about those subject areas? Yeah, you know, as we think about what should be the regulatory framework with, within which these exist, you know, I first want to say that, you know, um, all of us are looking to the solution to um, tobacco and cigarette smoking. Um, it's Tobaccos and cigarettes are deadly, and we want to have a solution. I'm just not sure that e-cigarettes and vaping, um, which are currently not regulated, available in multiple flavors, and um, 
the long-term benefits are just not known of them. So in that context, what we see is attractive to youth, which I mentioned to you we're very concerned about, is easy access, cheap pricing, and multiple flavors. So sometimes children are picking up these flavors that are available in bubblegum and mango and fruit medley and not even realizing what they're using. And we know that when flavors are limited, children are less likely to use them. So that's going to be a really important part as we move forward as a state to think about how do we get these um, devices and these flavors out of their um, access to youth and young people so that we have less people starting to use them. Okay. Let me turn the subject a little bit to something that also makes the paper, especially in the summertime, which is uh, equine uh, encephalitis uh, or, or West Nile virus that can result in humans from, from mosquito bites. Now, we know that DPH follow the, follows those uh, diseases when they, when they occur. But when it comes to trying to mitigate or reduce the risk, uh, even though you're at the state level, there's workings with local government on issues like spraying. Uh, tell us a little bit how you, working with local government, try to balance uh, uh, interests there, especially with people wanting to be outdoor in the summertime doing activities versus the, the risk of a bite. Um, so, you know, you're right. This has been, a v unfortunately, a very active year for Eastern Equine, Eastern equine Encephalitis. And when we think about East, e Triple E, as it's called, um, Triple E is rare, um, but unfortunately, it's one of those diseases that's carried by mosquitoes. You get it from a mosquito bite. It's rare, but if you do get it, it's very serious and unfortunately can be deadly. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a very active year for Tripoli this year in Massachusetts. We've had 12 cases and very sadly, three deaths related to that. So um, our job is to make sure that individuals understand what the risks are of Tripoli. Because it's an active year, we worked very closely with our unbelievable partners in local health and um, individuals across communities to make sure that folks understand the most important thing about Triple E, which is personal protection. So making sure, um, you know, um, the hard things like changing our behavior. So wearing mosquito spray, wearing um, long sleeves, stay, staying inside. And what we try to do at the state level and in collaboration with our local partners is make sure that we put out all the information and people then can make informed decisions about balancing their risk and um, understanding what the um, health outcomes and the spring are. issue at a municipal level? Uh, so we work very closely with our colleagues across state government and with our mosquito control programs to um, understand where spraying needs to happen. We did a, a tremendous amount of aerial spraying this year as well as local spraying. And that really is a piece that um, adds to the personal protection piece and the behavioral piece together to make sure that we um, help people protect themselves as best they can. Okay. <clears throat> so Commissioner, you've been in your job now since 2015, and I think for most of your tenure, the major issue that the public has been concerned about is opioid addiction, opioid abuse. Can you tell us where the Commonwealth is at right now and how we stand in relation to uh, the rest of the country in terms of addressing and dealing with and trying to reduce the problem? Absolutely, John. So the um, when the governor um, came into office in 2015, he appropriately named um, addressing the opiate epidemic as his number one health priority. And at the Department of Public Health, we have been working tirelessly since 2015 to move forward the governor's action plan on how to address the opiate epidemic. And there's a couple of things I want to say about it. When you look at the current opioid epidemic, um, it takes the lives of about 2,000 individuals in Massachusetts. 
So let's pause for that for a second. That's 2,000 preventable deaths here in Massachusetts. So we have been laser focused on working with our communities um, to decrease the number of deaths and the risk for individuals. And um, one of the most important things for us um, related to addressing the opioid epidemic has been to address it through a public health lens. So that means looking um, at prevention as a core. So for individuals who have not been exposed to opiates, making sure that the risks are understood, making sure that um, young people understand what the risks are, people understand that fentanyl is now present and deadly and a part of this opiate epidemic, and then making sure individuals who are using have access to the life-saving um, treatments and things like Narcan to reverse an overdose, have access to treatment, and really importantly, have access to a stable recovery. Part of what we've seen is that um, because of this multi-pronged community-based approach that we have is that Massachusetts was one of the first states to see a decrease in the number of opioid deaths. So just to give you a flavor of that, if you look from 2013 to 2014, we were seeing about a 40% increase in the number of deaths, right? So almost doubling. And in the last couple of years, we've seen about a 4% decline. So what that shows us is that we're seeing a steadying of these deaths and are starting to see a decline. So the interventions that we've put in place are beginning to work, but also tells us there's much more to do. We have to keep at it and continue to um, increase access for individuals most at risk um, in order to stem the tide of these deaths. I must say that that decrease um, is happening in the face of rising numbers of fentanyl use. So unfortunately, when people die, 92% of them um, 92% of the times when we look at autopsies, fentanyl was present. So fentanyl continues to be a problem, um, but we're really seeing unbelievable responses at the community level where communities are coming together and saying, in our community, how do we educate? How do we prevent disease? And then how do we make sure people have access to treatment? I will say that one of the things that we continue to work on is the issue of stigma. Um, there's lots of um, um, opinions people have about opiate use and um, about it being a personal choice or about a decision that someone's making. And we've worked really hard um, to help individuals understand that opiate use disorder is a medical disease that deserves to be prevented and treated just like any other medical disease. And we're seeing, we're, we're seeing it change. We're seeing that stigma being lifted. And um, I'm really hopeful that we'll continue to see a decline in the number of deaths, um, which really is devastating, uh, of course, to the family, but to all of our communities when you lose a loved one. Is there anything that needs to be added to your arsenal of approaches and tools to try to address it, or do you think you have what you need right now? Um, what we're doing right now is what's most important right now in our response to the opioid epidemic is to continue to move forward on this path of preventing disease, so preventing individuals who, are, who don't have it, and then increasing access to the life-saving mechanisms of things like Narcan treatment and recovery. So it's about continuing the current work, but I will say that we are really focused on making sure that individuals who are at highest risk have the capacity to access this, and we're making the services as accessible as possible. So there are certain um, communities that we have found are unfortunately at increased risk for overdoses and death, and we're really focused on making sure our services are getting to those. So those include um, individuals um, with a history of co-occurring mental health issues and addiction. It includes communities of color. It includes pregnant and postpartum women. It includes individuals with a history of incarceration and those with housing instability. So we're making sure that our services um, are really accessible to everybody. Thank you. Paul? 
Commissioner Burrell, I'm going to shift the focus a little bit away from some of the traditional areas like uh, nicotine opiates and mosquito-borne illnesses to an area that our podcast listeners might not always be aware of, that the, your department has responsibilities on sort of the healthcare system side. In, in particular, you oversee a uh, determination of need. Some states call this certificate of need set of uh, regula- law and regulations when a major hospital capital project or a hospital merger uh, is, is uh, planned by one of our uh, healthcare organizations. In reviewing the history of those projects, it didn't come to either John or my attention that the Public Health Council, which is involved in it review, has actually ever stopped any of those from going forward. Does that, does that sound right to you? And if so, your, your thoughts about that? You know, I don't recall um, one of the projects ever um, being denied. However, what I do want to focus on is what we're doing now to increase um, accountability in our determination of need program. In 2017, we did a major overhaul of the determination of need program, which really hadn't had an overhaul like that since the 1970s. And think about how much healthcare has changed. You wrote the whole regulations. Since the 1970s. Um, And so there's some really important aspects of the determination of need now that I um, believe make it stronger and make it more um, appropriately focused on public health value. So, for example, in the past, an individual hospital or facility would talk about Um, the improvement that they were making and how they believed it would improve their patient's care. When they presented that to the Public Health Council, it was kind of a snapshot in time, and then they moved on with their project. What we put in place in 2017 is a, 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 a reform that really, instead of looking at the individual facility, looked at the entire um, healthcare system. Many facilities are now part of a healthcare system, and um, looked across that healthcare system about how all individuals in that system would have improved care. The other thing we put in place is an annual reporting process so that each year, um, the healthcare system would now now comes back to us and really um, reports back on how the project is going, which adds accountability. And then we also have the capacity, if needed, to um, you know um, connect that to future DUNs if they're not able to um, improve the public health value, as they said they would. So I believe these improvements are really going to help us um, one modernize the DON to um, be appropriate for the healthcare system we're in now, and um, all. Also, to be able to um, help us improve um, the way we deliver care in Massachusetts. In the, the last couple of years, with some sensitivity, I think, both to access and cost a little bit, the, the Public Health Council has added uh, conditions to some of the projects, children's hospitals, building a major building, BI Leahy is now merging. How do you feel about that process to date and some of those transactions and the review and, and the conditions that were added, especially in the you know, the uh, cost realm uh, worry, potential worry, I should say. Yeah, so the way that the standard, we now have some standard conditions that we put in place with all determination of need projects, and um, it really helps us to be able to set a baseline of what we uh, what the expectations are of our colleagues in the healthcare system, and it includes some really critical pieces like language access, um, participation in mass health, as well as the annual reports I mentioned, and it also allows us to um, um, standardize the way that community health funds go out to the community. So um, it's a really important part and um, you know we've been um, um, nationally people have been interested in how we've thought about our community health um, investments and for the first time in Massachusetts we've set state public health 
priorities um, that we ask all healthcare systems to actively engage their communities in and continue, excuse me, have those communities be active participants to be able to move upstream from what I spoke about earlier, focusing on the disease, to thinking about how we live in a healthy way in our communities. So those four areas include some of the things actually we've been talking about, prevention of chronic disease, um, addiction treatment, mental health and wellness, and housing and homeless instability. And a community can decide to pick something else, but many communities have picked projects in those areas. And it's about thinking about, we want to be able to provide disease care in our healthcare systems. It's so important. And in Massachusetts, access to care is something that we've worked on for a long time, and it's really critical when someone's sick. However, we also know in Massachusetts, we also know in Massachusetts and across the United States, still, our zip code is far more important than our genetic code in terms of how healthy we are. And what we're trying to do with these changes is shift our thinking of health to be in the community and make real commitments to communities being healthy so that all of us, regardless of our background, our income, have opportunities for health here in Massachusetts. Okay. I'd like to shift to a topic that's very hot right now in the legislature, which is the issues of vaccines and preventing childhood illnesses. There are two bills in the legislature right now. One would just eliminate the religious exemption that allows people not to have their children vaccinated. That's been done in a number of other states. Another bill would give the Department of Public Health much more broad regulatory authority over reporting and other issues relating to vaccines. This is a big issue all over the country. How big a deal is this in Massachusetts? Can you contextualize? Do we have a problem with vaccination? And where, where does Massachusetts stand, do you think, as you think about what approach you want to take with these bills? So first, John, I, I, I appreciate that opening to be able to remind all of our listeners that one of the biggest advances in public health um, and health ever has been um, vaccination. So I urge everybody to be up to date on their vaccinations. It's flu season, get your flu shots. Um, this um, preventive piece is one of the most important things you can do for your health. When we look in Massachusetts at vaccinations, I'm really um, proud of the work that we've all done here together. Um, you know, school-age children going um, into school here in Massachusetts have very high levels of vaccinations for um, things like measles and mumps, above 95%. So um, I'm really proud of our collaborative work across Massachusetts. Um, of course, there's more work to be done, um, but I think we're on the right track here, and it's really important for those of us in health and public health to continue to make sure that the the facts and the important benefits of vaccine are shared broadly. Okay. So final question, and this is a broader question. As, as Massachusetts Commissioner of Public Health, you are the leading voice on public health and the health of the Massachusetts public. You also get to participate in national organizations where you actually have a national voice through things like the Association of State Health Commissioners and so forth. This morning I saw on the news an alarming increase in obesity among young adults, ages two, young, uh, children between ages 2 and 17. And if we look across the spectrum of the health indicators in the United States, we have three years of declining life expectancy. We have exploding obesity. We have an epidemic of gun violence. We have the worst rate of any country in uh, any developed country on maternal mortality, on infant mortality. As you look at the big picture, is 
is public health failing America or is America failing public health? Um, why are we so unable to make the advances that we see among every other advanced industrialized nation? What's, what's, what's gone wrong? Well, John, I'm a um, realistic optimist. So um, my take on what we're doing here in public health, um, it, it's really based on thinking about the people who are doing the public health work and the health work across uh, Massachusetts and across the country. If you talk to the individuals who are doing the day-to-day -day work to keep us all healthy, these are tremendously talented, well-informed, hardworking individuals who are doing a lot to prevent disease. And when things are prevented, we don't always hear about it. So there actually is a ton of really important good public health working here um, and across the country. That said, it is true that in the United States, um, we have a problem in the way we think about health. We are, of course, the country that spends the most on health care and has some of the worst um, quality outcomes when it comes to health care. And to me, this comes back to thinking about how we um, look at health versus disease. And, you know, in Massachusetts, we've made it a baseline that we are going to give individuals access um, at, um, to health care. We still need to do that at the national level. Um, access to health care is really critical, and you can't treat disease without it. But again, thinking more broadly about health, there's a way that we need to think about our resources, our existing resources, and shift and align them to think about how people live healthily in their community. To give you an example, at the Department of Public Health, since 2015, we've been working on a public health data warehouse. And as part of that, we're taking information from across different state agencies and looking at them and linking them at an individual level for the first time in Massachusetts. And that is allowing us to really truly understand, with, by the way, data that we already have, how do individuals um, access services across Massachusetts? We've used it a lot to address the opiate epidemic. How do we think about someone's mental health issues, addiction issues, health issues, how they're living in their community, what things they're exposed to, and help individuals make more informed decisions. So we're turning data into information and putting it out to our community partners so that they can then use that data to use their existing resources to actually improve health for individuals. So, um, and I, I think it's a model that's working and there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve health that way. But would you agree or disagree that the United States is failing on public health? Um, I think that um, in general, in those of us working in public health are making improvements every day um, that really um, makes um, all of us safer and healthier. Um, in Massachusetts, um, we pride ourselves in being a leader in public health. We're one of the healthiest states um, in the country, and um, that's based on, again, access to really good, high-quality health care and also a laser focus on smart health policy and all of us as a community in Massachusetts saying um, we demand health for ourselves and our loved ones and working towards that together. I did, I did a little analysis for Commonwealth Magazine last spring where I compared Massachusetts versus other leading nations in terms of the basic health stats like life expectancy, infant mortality. We are mediocre to poor compared to all of these other nations. So we look good in comparison among the 50 states, and we actually look pretty mediocre to poor when we look at ourselves versus other nations. 
And I think what that raises is that there's always work to do. And there are, you know, when you think about a place that's as healthy as Massachusetts, um, there are individuals within our communities, um, many of the patients I cared, care very deeply about, who don't have access to those opportunities. So our job um, is to make sure that we improve access to those and work towards health equity for all of us. Okay. Commissioner Brown, thank you. Lots, lots going on. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. So, Paul, as we've started to do, where after our guest leaves, we talk about them behind their back. One of the things that strikes me is we covered so many bases in such a short amount of time with Commissioner Burrell. And I'm also just so aware that for every issue we talked about, I can think of 10 issues that I wish we had time to talk about because the plate at the Department of Public Health is just so full of so many compelling and important issues to the Massachusetts public. Just something that strikes me whenever we get into the public health space. What do you think? Well, John, I, I agree. And even for the issues we talked about, uh, sometimes there's aspects of that that the commissioner can't get into. So, for example, one, one that interests me in, in, in the vaping space and why they find themselves, you know, in a court process is this whole issue of when, even when you think you have a public health emergency, it doesn't give you an automatic right to ignore, ignore traditional comment and rulemaking, which is part of an administrative process and issuing a regulation. And so now they're... Uh, you know, in court and actually after having been in court, reissuing a regulation and going through that process when they didn't the first, first time around. And I think for a lot of us, there's sensitivity when we look to Washington, amongst other places, and see that the rule of law isn't always respected. So that's one thing I, 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 that she couldn't talk about that I thought about. The other that she could have talked about but didn't was that when she went through the, the DON areas, you know, and talked importantly, you know, about some of the access issues around uh, some of the public health investments that, that accompany, you know, some of the, the transactions. She didn't talk about, even though DPH is dealing, has some responsibilities here, some of the cost growth implications of, of, of you know, whether it's building a, a large building and adding new beds or, or mergers. And even though, you know, they are tiptoeing into that space, uh, I think there's a lot of us who worry about the cost growth of those projects, hoping that that DPH, its staff, and the Public Health Council uh, can more assertively enter that space in some of the conditions that they write. And, and she sort of uh, decided not to talk about that aspect at all. So how about you? What, what's Very that, what interesting. I, just one, one more thing, and then we'll close off with just, I guess it's a little bit of a rant, not at the commissioner. I've watched all four, I think it's been four, of the Democratic presidential debates and noticed that for the first half hour to 45 minutes, Every single time they argue about Medicare for all, which I think is an important and compelling conversation to have. And it just drives me crazy, though, that we spend so much time on that. And in not one of these debates have we heard a word about declining life expectancy in the United States, exploding rates of obesity and overweight among adults and children, uh, the shameful rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality in the United States, and on and on. And I wonder why it is that people just don't pay attention to this stuff. And it's one of the, I think, the frustrations we all share in the sphere of public health. But uh, it just strikes me, particularly with all of the incredibly important um, uh, issues that, uh, that we were able to discuss in this brief interview with uh, Commissioner Burrell. But anyway, so that's my rant of the month. Um, and uh, thank you, Paul, as thank always, you, for being my 
generous and vivacious co-host. And we will be back again next month with another Health or Consequences. Thank you all. Thank you.